Welcome to Southern Illinois Worship Center. Today, you'll be hearing a powerful message from our latest series. Let's listen in now. Welcome to the series on the tabernacle. We're going to go for about uh, six or seven months today <laughs> to go through this, but we're going to take some time. We're going to go through the tabernacle. And my purpose in doing this is to show you God's plan of Jesus Christ through the tabernacle and what it means to us and every piece of it and how it describes Jesus Christ into our lives. And so when we talk about the tabernacle, you have to remind yourself that we, the New Testament church, are not talking about walls or ringlets or staves or pieces of furniture or cattle or lambs. We're talking about Jesus Christ. Everything about this is Jesus Christ. The entire goal of God was to dwell with man. He desired a dwelling in man and through man. And as you read through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you discover that the chief concern of God was how to have a relationship with you. God's greatest desire was to have a relationship with each of us. In the book of Genesis, we find God desiring this type of relationship. God comes down in the cool of the day, and he desires to have fellowship with a man. This communion with man and God would have continued indefinitely. But there was a tragedy that took place, and that tragedy interrupted and disrupted the relationship that God desired with that man. That day that sin intervened, it broke just the tranquil peace that was there in the garden. It was fully capable of ruining man and wrecking, wrecking man for eternity. One incident in the garden had the full capability of ruining man's relationship with God. So God had to have a plan so that man could come back into relationship with man. So it was necessary for man, though, to understand what the results would be of sin. I think a lot of people in our world today don't understand the repercussions of their actions. We could go back to a couple weeks ago where we talked about accountability and we want to blame everything else about the repercussions that we're feeling, but the ultimate reality is most of what we are reaping is because of what we have sown. And so it was necessary for man just to suffer the results of disobedience. And in the garden that day, the question was not, was the fruit good? It didn't matter whether or not the fruit was good. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good to the eye. It was also good to the taste. And I just wanted to put that in there today for all the people that said it feels good. Just because it looks good, it tastes good, and feels good doesn't mean it's good. So it was good to the eye. It was good to the taste. Why was it good to the eye? Why was it good to the taste? Well, God made it. And it was, according to God's words, very good. 
It's even possible to imagine that that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was more attractive than any other tree in the garden. The fruit that Adam and Eve took of, it contained no poison. It contained no chemical that would be detrimental to the physical man. But the change in man by participating in eating of the fruit was not chemical in nature. It was not that they were suffering from food poison. There was nothing within that fruit that hurt them physically. So they thought, we've gotten away with it. And world today thinks because they are still getting away with it, that it's going to be all right. But the change is not necessarily physical, or is it chemical? It is spiritual. And if you look at our world today, we are eating fruit that tastes good, looks good, but it is destroying us spiritually. And while we walk our streets and walk our neighborhoods, we are seeing the disastrous results of disobedience of man to God. The question in the garden was one question, and it's the same question even right now. Would man obey God, or would man go into his own self-will? Will man decide for himself, or will man trust God? Everything about Christianity is a matter of obedience. It's the fundamental truth of Christianity is, will we obey God? God had said to Adam and Eve, do not eat. That should have been enough. God should not have had to describe to them all the repercussions of what would have happened had they ate the fruit. If you have a child and you tell them, please don't stick your tongue into that electrical outlet, do you need to tell them all the things that could happen to them should they put their tongue into the electrical outlet, or do you believe as a parent that what you say to your child is enough? Don't do that. But what, do your, what does your child do? Takes their tongue and sticks it into the outlet. And there is a repercussion of sticking their tongue into the outlet. And try as you might as a parent to rewind the tape and keep them from the disastrous results of sticking their tongue into the electrical outlet, you cannot do it. And as much as God wanted to get away from the results of coming out of a relationship with man, it was too late because man had already disobeyed God. Now, what should we do? And man should have just operated in faith and trusted that God was doing good by him, God was doing good for him, and God was doing his very best for him because everything that Adam had in his life, God had created, and it was good thus far. Why then should I doubt God about whether or not I should eat this fruit or not? But the enemy loves to tempt us. And as you look at that, you have to ask yourself a question, and this should be a question many of you ask when you get ready to sin. How bad is it to disobey God? How bad do you make it on your children when they disobey you? The other night, me and Zoe had an intense moment of fellowship. 
I said, give me your phone. 30 minutes later, I had to leave. And I needed a way to communicate with her. And so I said, here's your phone. And then I forgot to take it back when I got back home. So Zoe in her mind thinks that when I have an intense moment of fellowship with her, and I, by the way, I was the only one that was intense. She had no idea what was going on. She thinks it's only temporary and there's nothing permanent about it. And I think many people have come to that same conclusion about the sin that they perform in their life, that penalties are only temporary and nothing permanent can come of it. My friend, soon the eastern skies will part. And if you have not worked your way back to getting your phone back from God to communicate with God, you're going to miss it and it will be permanent. If you want to know what it's like to disobey God, just examine the effects of Adam's transgression. And Adam's transgression did not just affect Adam, it affected the entire human race. How fast did it happen? Well, they were in peace. The lion lay down with the lamb. Things were amazing. And just a few moments after Adam missed his appointment with God, We have a death. An innocent animal is slain to cover Adam and Eve. Nature has now been completely disrupted by one man's disobedience. Then just one generation from peace and tranquility, Adam and Eve have two sons, one by the name of Cain and one by the name of Abel. Just a few Months and years ago, they were walking with God in the cool of the morning, and then disobedience comes in, and now Adam has to have a meeting with Eve and tell Eve, your son Cain killed your son Abel. Why would this happen? We were just walking and talking with God, but sin has ramifications. And just because you as parents commit it doesn't mean that your children are going to be exempt from it. And as you walk as parents, it affects your family on down the line. So wouldn't it be better for us as parents to live in obedience with God to prevent our children from having to live with the curses that we have created by our own disobedience? Not only that, there was a new emotion that arrived. Not only had hate entered into Cain, But now when God gets ready to talk to Cain, we find the first biblical reference to depression. When God asks him a question, he says, why are you cast down? Why are you so depressed here, Cain? Because Cain realized what he had done in his life and depression comes in. And right now, our world is in the most depressed state we have ever been in our lives. Could it be that the world, and I'm not talking about you as an individual, but could it be that our world is in such a depressive state because we have brought the wrong sacrifice to God? Then if you want to look at what the price of disobedience is, if you don't want to look at Adam and Eve, let's go to the cross of Calvary. Look at the cross and the crucifixion and the price that Christ paid Then, by looking at the price that he has paid, 
then you can see the extent of what it took to get man back out of disobedience and back to an opportunity for communion with God. How many of you have actually watched the passion of Christ? How many of you have winced when it happened? Let me freely admit to you, I have never fully watched the passion of Christ. Because when they start in on him, I start looking away. I start looking because I can't handle what they did to him. And if I can't handle what they did to him, I would never be able to handle what was really meant for me. And so if you want to know what the cost and the extent of what it was to give you and I the opportunity to be in this building today, Jesus took all that on him so that you could be here today. He took what he didn't deserve to get you out of what you did deserve. So in that beginning, there was a disobedience. And God's trying to figure out, I want to dwell with man. How do I do this? God had a plan to get back into communion and relationship with man from the very beginning. And my duty, my task over the next few weeks is to show you through the study of the tabernacle how God begins to unveil this plan. He does it from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Malachi. And then there's an unveiling that begins to happen after 400 years of silence between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. In that 400 years of silence, God is wrapping up a gift. And that gift is getting ready to be unveiled and his name is going to be Jesus. But from Genesis to Malachi, God is showing exactly what is getting ready to come. God is proving to his people, I have a plan. And this plan is so that I can dwell with all men everywhere. And I have a plan to give man an opportunity to do this. But God had to show this plan. And how God shows the plan, we call it the old Testament. It's a testimony to the plan of God. And God begins to unveil this plan through what we call types and shadows. There's types, and when we look at a type, we have to see Christ. When we look at a shadow, we start seeing the plan of God begin to operate in the Old Testament. So let me go take you back to uh, when I was in school, you new kids have no concept of what this is. But how many of you remember when they used to get the projector set up in school? Anybody remember that? The kids are like, what is a projector? Well, it was a thing that we only had one of them in the school, and we had to sign it up for it and sign it out. And we would, it was the great job of your world to be able to go down to the AV place and get the cart and wheel the cart down into the classroom and set it up. Do I have any teacher's pets in the room that you just, hey, I want to get in on that? And you knew who was going to be the next person to go get the cart by what happened when you plugged the projector in and the lamp came on, yet there was no image on the screen because all the class clowns would begin to make shapes in front of the projector, putting shapes onto the back screen. Anybody, how many of y'all are class clowns? Right? You took your fingers and you made rabbits and you made eagles. Some of you told people they were number one. We call those Christians who have fishes on their bumper and birds out their window. 
but that was BC. <laughs> now that I got your mind back to elementary school, that little object, it illustrates that there are three elements that are necessary to create a shadow. There has to be a source of light. There has to be an object or a class clown that interrupts the projection of that light. And there has to be a screen or some sort of background substance on which the shadow can be cast. The, the biggest shadow, those of us in Southern Illinois should really know this, the biggest shadow show for humans is an eclipse. It's when the shadow of the moon blocks out our view of the main body of the sun. Or the earth then comes between the sun and the moon and we have what we call the eclipse of the moon. In the eclipse of the sun, we are in the shadow being cast by the moon. Whereas when we have the eclipse of the moon, we see the shadow of the earth being cast on the moon. However, in any of these instances, you will never see a shadow cast by the sun because there is no source of light that is greater than the sun. So let me just put that into spiritual terms. When we see types and shadows, we will never see a shadow of God. We only see things because God is light. There is nothing bigger or greater than God. And so people say, well, I want to see the shadow of God. No, the God is shining light. And then something interrupts the light that God shines and it casts a shadow over here. And so as God begins to unveil this plan, God is shining light onto people because he desires to dwell with them. And he places the tabernacle in between his light and a substance that can show it called the word of God. And as the tabernacle interrupts the light of God, it casts a shadow, but we do not see God. We see the cross of Calvary and we see Jesus Christ. And the tabernacle is the interruption of God's light to show you the plan and the unveiling of God's miraculous opportunity to dwell inside of each of your hearts. Types and shadows. Because there is so much truth that is hidden in Jesus Christ that it takes a long time to unfold all that truth. May I tell you that that's why heaven will never get boring? We will only have three words to describe what we experience as the truth of Jesus Christ unfolds. You know what they are? Holy. And then Jesus unfolds another truth, and you know what you're going to say? Holy. And then he says, well, let me show you this part of me, and you know what you're going to say? Holy. You're going to sound like a Georgia football fan. Holy, holy, holy. That's all you can say. Wow, look at this. This is amazing. And what are we going to say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. All the truth that's being revealed to you is going to show you the light of Almighty God, the one who was and is and is to come. And as he begins to unfold, all this to you in heaven, all you're going to be able to muster is holy. So we can sing the words of only can imagine, but here's what it is. 
Will I stand before you, Jesus, or to my knees will I fall? Will I cry hallelujah, or will I be able to say anything at all? Well, you won't say hallelujah, and you will be able to say something. It'll be holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. So much truth hidden in Jesus Christ. There's an interval in the scripture. It happens between the rejection of the king and the reception of the king. It happens between the cross and his crown. It happens between the upper room and the eastern sky. It happens between his humiliation and his exaltation. God, in that little time frame, is building a dwelling place with you. In that time frame between the cross and his crown, God is building dwelling places with man. It is not a temple or a tabernacle built by the hands of man, but it is built by God into the hearts of men and women. So today we're not going to erect another tabernacle and say that's how we get to God. No, we get to God by letting this heart of stone be turned into a heart of flesh and then allowing Jesus Christ to come inside of us and he desires to tabernacle or to dwell within you so people are like all these people going back to the old testament we want to get back to the festivals and the festivities and we want to go back to the old testament my friend all of that stuff has been fulfilled in jesus christ so god's great desire is to walk with you to talk with you and to dwell with you that's what this whole thing is about Surface truths are one thing, but there are some really deep truths wrapped up in God. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God was very grieved when Eve ignored his command and listened to the serpent. And to the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It meaning her seed shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now behind those words that are in that text, there is a lot of hidden treasures of truth which God chose to reveal little by little. He knew that the seed would die, but he also knew that the seed would rise again on the third day. In this little text, God is telling how he's going to solve the problem of being able to dwell with man. The question many people say is, well, has God solved the problem for man to be able to dwell with him and for God to be able to dwell with man? Has God done anything about it? Well, if you want to know the answer to that question, has God solved the problem? All you have to do is move from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 and go all the way to the opposite end of the Bible into the book of Revelation. At the very conclusion, we read of a day that is going to be in the future. And it says there, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and he their God. Revelation 21 and verse 3. So has God solved the problem? Yes, he has. He does not build, need to build a bunch of furniture up on this stage or out in our parking lot to tabernacle with you. God solved the problem. He tabernacles within you. In the same chapter of the book of Revelation, then in the 22nd verse, 
It says there, I saw no temple therein. People are, when is he going to rebuild the temple? There's no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. In the beginning, see, fellowship was lost. But in the ending, fellowship is restored. No more intermediaries. No, 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 no. Now we get to do just like Adam did. We get to walk with God. We get to talk with God. He gets to dwell with us. He comes up in the cool of the morning. And all of a sudden, we get to walk through the garden of God, which is like the St. Louis Zoo without all the fences. I get to see the lion and not be afraid. I get to walk through and pet the giraffe and not worry about what's coming up behind me. Why? Because the lion will lay down with the lamb and everything will be restored the way that God originally intended for it to be. The pages of scripture reveal this. From the fall in Genesis to the new Jerusalem and that scene in the book of Revelation, it's all telling us how God solved the problem. God's answer to the whole question may be expressed briefly, And just in these simple terms, how did God solve the problem? The cross of Jesus Christ. That's how he solved it. And I know many people, the cross is trivial. We don't know why we celebrate it, why you talk about it all the time. But the cross is the answer to the problem of how a holy God can dwell with unholy sinners. Everything in your life and my life rests upon this thing, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Your healing, your miracle, your deliverance, your children, your relationships, your finances, everything rests on the finished work of Jesus Christ. If it was not for the finished work of Jesus Christ, you would have no means of healing or of deliverance or an opportunity for Jesus to do anything in your life. The cross of Christ may appear to some people ridiculous and unnecessary, but my friend, it is here. You realize in church growth seminars just a few years ago, they said if you want to grow your church, you should eliminate three things. You should stop talking about the blood of Jesus. Stop talking about the cross of Jesus, and let's just eliminate Jesus. Well, my friend, if we eliminate those things, are we by definition a church? Because everything rests on Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary and the shedding of his blood. May I remind you what Hebrews said? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no hope for me. So unless we talk to you about the blood and the sacrifice, there is no way that what you have done that causes you to be out of relationship with God, there's no way for that to be covered so that you can come into relationship with God. So let me just make this announcement to you if you're new here. We will talk about the blood we will talk about the cross and we will talk about Christ. Christ and his cross, and we're really going to talk about in this series, are a type in the tabernacle. It's got ceremonies, it's got sacrifices. And even before Christ came, He was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus is the eternal sacrifice for sin. He's the only sacrifice that brings a sinner into fellowship with God. 
He is the only sacrifice that brings a sinner into fellowship with God. He is the only sacrifice. Your sacrifice won't do it. Your parents' sacrifice won't do it. Your grandpappy's sacrifice won't do it. A president of the United States' sacrifice won't do it. The only sacrifice that gets you into right relationship with God is Jesus Christ. He is the only way. Buddha didn't do it. Muhammad's not going to do it. No one's going to do it other than Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not a way. He is the way. And the death of Christ is just more than a historical event that took place about 2,000 years ago. It was the purpose of God throughout eternity. It was not an emergency measure. It was not an afterthought. It was the first and only plan that God had, and he had it before the foundation of the world. May I ask you just a simple question? If the, if the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world... Then the lamb was slain before what you read in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. So it was not an afterthought. It was not like Satan got one up on God. It's not like Satan outsmarted God. It's not like he said, you know what? If I pull this little trick with Adam and Eve, then God has no move. No, my friend, God already had the last move already planned out before the foundation of the world. And so Lucifer may have thought he got one up on God. And here's what he said to the serpent. The seed of that woman, you may bruise its heel, but he's going to crush your head. I'm just going to announce to you right here at the beginning what the end of your world is, that that seed is going to rise again and it's going to crush your head. I mean, I think God was talking trash, right? They led the seed of the woman to the place of the skull and put the cross into the top of the place of the skull. And God's like, I told you it was coming. It's coming. So all these people think about Lucifer being surprised that Jesus showed up. If he would have just read God's playbook, he would have seen it coming. And he would have probably should have just surrendered the keys and said, all right, I give. But when people get into disobedience, they dig a deeper hole instead of repenting. Ordinarily, when we think about the cross, we think of the cross as just a historical fact. That there's something that happened in the past. And in doing that, we emphasize a great fact, but we minimize something else. The Apostle Paul never thought about the cross of Calvary and of Christ as just being a historical person who died on a historical cross. It is true it happened 2,000 years ago. Paul believed that it happened thousands of years ago. But to the apostle Paul, Christ was more than one who had died on a cross some time ago. Paul spoke of Christ not as one who was crucified, but he would say, Jesus, who is the crucified one. He says, before Golgotha, the cross was in the mind of God. Before Calvary, the death of Christ was in the purpose of God. He talks about Christ in the present tense. 
And I think this is important for us. I don't know if you know this or not, but my kids don't need a historical Jesus. Our world doesn't need a historical Jesus. Those of you that are sick in your body, you don't need a historical Jesus. You need a right now Jesus. You don't need a was, you need an is. And he is the Lamb of God who was slain. And so you can have a healing right now. If he was just historical, it wouldn't matter right now. But he's not just historical. He is an ever-present help in times of need and trouble. So he is a right now God. You can be getting ready to get into a car accident. You're probably riding with Melissa. And all you have to say is Jesus and he shows up but if he was only historical Jesus it wouldn't matter what you said but when you call on him he's an ever-present help he is the same yesterday today and forever he said I will never leave you I will never forsake you but I will be with you I'm there with you right now Oh, if I could just get to church and find Jesus. No, right there in your prayer closet, right there in the middle of that hospital room, you can call on Jesus and he is right there. So it's not strange or even alarming that when we go through the tabernacle, we find Jesus. We find the lamb which takes away the sin of the world. He's all prefigured in types and shadows in the tabernacle. In fact, the tabernacle speaks of Jesus in every shade of color and even down to the minutest of thread, even down to the tent stakes. It all speaks of Jesus. So when God led his people out of Egypt, he set up what would be a temporary dwelling It was a place that he could dwell with them temporarily. It was called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And the very name that it was given spoke that it was temporary. Tabernacle or the tent. It was pitched in the desert. It was stakes driven in sand. Now, I fully claim that I am a diva when it comes to camping. You can go tent camping, you can buy a pop-up camper, you can do whatever you like. But as for me and my house, we're going to glamp. Here's why. I learned a long time ago that tents are not the most suitable structures in a thunderstorm. My grandfather told me it never rains in Colorado National Monument. It never rains. And while he and my grandmother and my mother and father slept dutifully in a motorhome, I was in a little pup tent outside. And in the place that it never rains, he was right. It didn't rain. It was a monsoon of monsoons. It was not a sprinkle. I mean, it was a torrential book of Acts downpour. (laughs) Me being in my right mind decided that this would probably not be the best place to be in a tent. I admit I was afraid. I knocked on the door of their safe and secure temple and tabernacle that was temporary on the top of that mountain. And I said, it is raining, Grandpa. I need a place to shelter in the middle of the storm. I'm thankful that I did because the next morning when I got up, that little pup tent was not there. No, no. Instead, it was over the side of the mountain. It is temporary 
on purpose. You see, none of you decided, you know what, I'm going to buy five acres in southern Illinois, and you begin to plot out, you know what, this is a good place for an igloo tent. No, you said, we're going to pour a foundation, we're going to build some walls, we're going to put a roof on it, and we're going to make it rated enough that we can withstand some storms of life. It's temporary. A tent is temporary. And not only that, they were driven, driving stakes into sand. So it was never meant to abide in one place very long. It was equipped for a desert march. The instructions of all of us that read it, we're impressed with this constant repetition of a word that you'll see, staves, meaning it's all built to carry. Everything was meant to be put up and let's go. Permanency was never one of its characteristics. Everything suggested that it would serve for a time for those that were present, but that would be set aside for something that abides forever. The tabernacle was set up to be temporary, but it was all stating that some point in time, this whole plan is going to be set aside and we're going to bring in something that is going to abide forever. I'm really glad that I didn't have to come to church today and get on this big heavy robe and a hat and be begin to inspect all of your little lambs. Instead, you could walk in freely into the holies of holies and present yourself to God because something temporary has been set aside and now something that abides forever has now been presented. The tabernacle is just a link in a chain. From the sacrifice of Abel to the cross of Christ, just a link in the chain. You read through the Old Testament, it just begins to unveil God supplying a means and a basis for us to dwell with him. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. How many of y'all remember that verse? The word was made flesh and it dwelt among us. Do you know the word dwelt is the word tabernacled? Eskanun. John chapter 1, verse 14. So the word was made flesh and he tabernacled among us. His dwelling with us at that point in time was temporary, roughly 33 years, temporary. But my friend, three days later, something permanent was now instituted that he really desired not to be temporary. He desired to dwell with you permanently. And so he said it like this, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man would hear me knocking and get up and let me in, then I will come in and I will sit with him and I will sup with him. God doesn't want to have a temporary McDonald's dinner with you. God wants to go to Chick-fil-A so that you and he can share Jesus chicken at the marriage supper of the lamb. Right? Because McDonald's is fast food, but Chick-fil-A, my friend, is Jesus chicken, and you can stay there all the time and eat Jesus chicken all the time. And he's a, he's a, we, he doesn't want you to go through the drive-thru. He wants you to come into the restaurant and say, how may I serve you? How can I help you today? Do you need anything else? Do you want anything else? Do you want some sweet tea? Nope, I'll take that fresh lemonade over there. Whatever you want, Jason, I will supply all of your needs of according to my riches in glory. I will never run out of chicken. I'm never going to run out of lemonade. I'm never going to run out of sweet tea. I'm going to supply all your needs. I'm just making sure you're paying attention. Dwell, tabernacle, God's plan being revealed. In the 10th generation of man, 
God selected a man to build an ark. Genesis chapter 5. Is everybody good? I gave you every verse I'm going to reference roughly in your notes. So it would save me a lot of time to not have to say all the verses. And yeah, get you out of here before Taco Bell closes. (laughs) Tenth generation of mankind, God selected a man to build an ark. The ark was a type of Christ. Noah and his family were a type of the church. They were safe in Christ. God steered the ark to be just at the right place to come to rest. Genesis chapter 8, in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, upon the mountains of Ariat. That's where the ark came to arrest. As the flood waters received, the ark was lifted out of the water on the 17th day of a month named Abib. Nearly 2,400 years later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead on that very day. Now, people would say, that's just a coincidence, 2,400 years removed from an ark that did not have even really any way to steer itself, God steered the ark to come to rest on the very day and place that Jesus Christ would rise from the dead. Not by coincidence. In the 20th generation, Genesis chapter 11, God revealed through Abraham that there would be an only son and that son would be offered And even though Abraham did not actually slay Isaac, the Bible says in Hebrews that he offered up his only begotten son. In his heart, Hebrews tells us, Abraham had already offered Isaac before Isaac even grabbed a hold of the wood for the burnt offering. Isaac carried the wood that he would be sacrificed on. Jesus carried the wood that he would be sacrificed on. The father revealed that there would be an only begotten son that would cleave to some wood, but that son wouldn't actually die. That son would come back down the mountain and be alive. Hebrews said that on the third day, he received him even from the dead in a figurative sense. On the third day. Do you see God's plan being revealed? It's not coincidence Everybody says the Old Testament is boring. No, it's showing you that God is real and that God has a plan. And if everything was ordered for Jesus, then God will order your steps. So after Abraham, we come to Moses. God's chosen founder of Old Testament law. He was an official foreshadow of Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 18 says he was God's chosen founder, prophet, and the judge of New Testament order. Christ is. That was said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 18. The Mosaic sacrifices, according to Hebrews 10, were a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. They were the body of Christ, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 17. So types and shadows have always been God's picture gallery, foreshadowing the person and the work Of Jesus Christ. The tabernacle is simply a figure and a type and a shadow of Jesus Christ. It represents his work, his life, his attributes, his character. Every detail of the tabernacle prefigures, foreshadows some aspect of the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. The brazen altar speaks of Jesus being on the cross. The laver speaks of Jesus as the word. The table of showbread speaks of Jesus as the bread of life. The candlestick speaks of Jesus as the light of the world. The altar of incense speaks of Jesus as our ever interceding 
high priest. The ark speaks of Jesus' attributes of justice. The mercy seat speaks of his attributes of love and of mercy. The wood speaks of his humanity, but the gold speaks of his divinity. The brass tells of his judgment. The silver reveals his redemption. White speaks of his perfect righteousness, while scarlet speaks of his blood. And the purple speaks of his royalty as the king of kings. Everything speaks of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everything that we would speak of would speak of Jesus Christ? That we speak Jesus, we pray Jesus, we walk in Jesus, we just do everything in the name that is above every name, and at that name every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is what? That he is Lord. So over the next few weeks, you're going to learn six things. Number one, you're going to learn the depravity of man because of his disobedience. Number two, you're going to learn about what they sang about in the third song, the goodness of God. Number three, you're going to learn that man desperately needs a change. I think we're learning that right now, right? Man needs to change. Fighting, murder, suicides, robberies, man needs a change. And because we're supposed to speak Jesus, the change will not come through a D or an R. It will come through the lamb. Not a donkey, not an elephant, the lamb. We speak of Jesus. So we're going to learn a man needs a change. Number four, we're going to learn the terms upon which man can approach God. Number five, we'll learn the plan of salvation. Then we're going to learn that Christ is being revealed. And so in this tabernacle, there are three types and shadows that God provides to speak of and lead us to Jesus. And let me put this clarifying statement in here. You're going to need to remember this throughout the entire series. A type in the Bible does not verify a truth. They illustrate what the Bible verifies. Okay, a type does not verify a truth. They just simply illustrate a truth that is already there. So many people are going to get into the types and say, oh, yeah, because of that. Because there's, there's people that will go to the extreme, right? They'll, they'll say the sand even means something. Or this piece of dirt means something. No, if it's there, we'll talk about it. But we're not going to make stuff up just because it sounds good. Everybody good with that? If you're like me, I like to read. I think I'm on uh, book 17 on the tabernacle right now. And out of 17 books, I've read some strange stuff. As a matter of fact, the other night I went in, woke Melissa up, and I said, hey, uh, just so you know, don't take that book out of the trash that I threw away. (laughs) And she said, why? I said, because I began to read the book, and something didn't sit right in my spirit. So I went and investigated the author of the book and found out that he's a leader of a cult. You know what I did with the book? Threw it away. Because any book that I read in the natural should not dilute what I'm reading out of this book. I just want to clarify a few things. So people say, well, I heard one time. Well, unless I could back it up with the word, we're not going to talk about it. So before the tabernacle was built, everybody good? All right, I'm, I'm wound up. Melissa's uh, 
performing a funeral right now. She's not going to be home. I got all day. Uh, before the tabernacle was built, God instituted something. He instituted something called the Passover. How many of y'all familiar with the Passover? It was established of the Passover month, and I gave you some verses that you can go read and read all about the Passover. The annual Passover was both a memorial and it was symbolic. It was a memorial in memory of that first Passover night in Egypt, but it was symbolic because it was the ultimate fulfillment in Calvary. It was the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world, John 1 and 1 Corinthians 5. And in this Passover, there was a few things that God instituted. One of them was called the observation period. On the 10th day of Abib, which that month got a name change and was called Nisan, each family on the 10th day of the month was to go out and select a lamb. So six days from now, I want all of you to stop by your local farmer and pick out one of his lambs. And here's the thing. You have to go pick out a lamb that didn't have a blemish, It had to be a male of the first year, and then you had to take that lamb and you had to keep it. You had to keep it isolated and under close observation until the 14th day. So you had to keep it from the 10th day. You picked it out on the 10th day. You had to keep it until the 14th day. You can read Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 through 6. If during that time period, the animal would have been injured or he became sick during those four days, it would have been what they called blemished. And a replacement would now be necessary. And that four-day interval apparently was giving you a type or a shadow of this critical observation period of the ultimate lamb, Jesus Christ. The last four days before his crucifixion, on Palm Sunday, he rode into Jerusalem on a colt. And the multitudes that went before and followed cried and sang, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is a fulfillment. Matthew 21, Mark 11 is a fulfillment of what Zechariah said in Zechariah 9 and 9. He says that the real antitype here, the Jesus as the Messiah is going to be the Passover lamb. So here he comes in on the 10th day of the month riding in. And they're saying, Hosanna to the king. And Jesus was kept under critical scrutiny for four days. He was challenged by four different groups in one day. Matthew 21, the chief priests and the elders. Then in verses 15 and 21, the Pharisees with the Herodians. Then in verses 23 of Matthew 21, it was the Sadducees. Then in verses 34 and 36, it was the Pharisees with their lawyer. What were they doing? They were inspecting the Lamb of God. They had no idea that they were fitting into the plan of God. They thought they were so spiritual that they were going to subvert the plan of God. But God's plan is so good that when the enemy tries to subvert it, it just fits into the plan of God. Let me just put it like this to you, okay? There are times the enemy will throw things into your life thinking he's going to derail the plan of God over your life. But God is so good that the trial and the tribulation that the enemy threw in your life to turn it and make it evil, God takes that evil and he turns it around for your good. And he just continually just outsmarts the enemy of your soul. God did specify in this time that the lamb was to be killed in the evening. That is in the day's fourth quarter between three o'clock and six o'clock p.m. By our time, so the scripture says it was shortly after the ninth hour Hebrew time, which is three o'clock our time. And somebody's going to get in the central standard time, eastern standard time. That's all somebody that didn't have enough time on their hands. (laughs) 
Luke 23 said, when Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now, at the time he gave it up, it was not an accident. God specified the time, the day that the Passover lamb should die. Exodus chapter 12, they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts, the lintel of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. For the blood needs to be shed and it needs to be displayed. There are many people that think that a vessel will do if I just talk about the blood or I hold the blood. But it's not enough to portray the blood. You have to apply the blood. Let me put it more in modern terms of all of us seeker-sensitive Christians. It is not enough for you to put on a T-shirt that says S-I-W-C. That just says, hey, I identify with the church. I want to know, do you identify with Christ? And the only way to identify with Christ is not to talk about Jesus and listen to Jesus' music. It's to talk, to take the blood of Jesus and not just put it on display, but put the blood of Jesus over your life and just apply it in every area, in your mind, in your heart, all the way from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. Put it over the doorpost of your house so that every person that enters in to talk to you sees the blood. And they'll talk differently to you. They'll act differently to you. They won't invite you to certain things. Why? Because they see the blood. And if you're talking a certain way and you're acting a certain way and your friends don't feel conviction around you, it's because you only display the blood, but you've not applied the blood. Oh, pastor, my friends are all different now. That's because they see the blood. Why does everybody want to apologize to me for cussing in front of me? Because they see pastor in front of my name. Because they see the blood. Oh, pastor, people are going to bully me because of that. But when they get the blood applied, they're going to get thrown out of that old in crowd, and they're going to be in the out crowd with you. And by the out crowd, I mean it's the crowd that's going out. I got to keep moving. Everybody's like, whoa, I don't know about that. I don't know. I don't. don't." (laughs) Then in Exodus chapter 12, verse 8, he said, they shall eat of the flesh on that night. Roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boil it at all with water, but roast it in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. I'm just going to kind of close right here because we're not even out of point number one. And I've been doing it for 45 minutes. I got a year and a half of study to give to you in 12 weeks. So he says in Exodus chapter 12, so Evan and your team, you can come. He says, I want you to do it. I want you to roast it. I want you to eat it. Don't eat it raw. Don't boil it with water. Eat it with unleavened bread. Do it with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat it raw. Don't boil it. Roast it in fire. It's head with its legs and its entrails. Let none of it remain until morning, but what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And in Exodus chapter 12, this lamb is a type or a pre-configuration of Christ. And the way that they cooked in that day, the cookware of that day, flesh could not be cooked without adding water. They had to add water to it. And here God says, with this lamb, Don't cook it the way you cook everything else. With this lamb, I want you to cook it without water. Don't add any water to it. So let me put it in terms of maybe a little differently than the King James Version. In other words, don't water Christ down. 
We want water, but we don't want the fire. And he said, the only way I want this lamb, and the only way this lamb is going to be accepted, is if you do it with fire. Don't water it down. Don't, put any, don't, don't, don't add anything to him. Don't take anything away. Just put the lamb there and let the fire do its job. Let the fire and the lamb do the work. And we have a lot of people who don't want the fire and they really don't want the lamb. But if you really want this and you really want Christianity and you really want revival, you want restoration, you want reconciliation, you want healings, you want miracles, you want signs and you want wonders, you're going to need the fire and the lamb. You can't just have the fire without the lamb and you can't have the lamb without the fire. You have to have the fire and the lamb. Because you remember the words of the lamb, right? He said, it's good for you that I go away because when I go away, there's one going to come after me who's going to baptize you with fire. And we've tried to water that down. Down to the point where we don't even have revival anymore. We've tried to water down the presence of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the move of God because all kinds of people cannot stomach the presence of God. But my friend, we're not here to water it down. I'm not here to take parts of it away. I'm here to make sure that the lamb is present and the fire is falling. We cannot just have Jesus without the fire. We got to have the fire and we got to have the lamb. We got to have Jesus and we got to have the Holy Spirit. Take it all or take nothing. That lamb was to be roasted whole. Right, we got people that want to cut parts of the Bible out. If he was the word and the word dwelt tabernacled with us, if you begin to eliminate parts of the word, you're watering it down. And for all the good people that want to add to it, you're doing the same thing. I'm not talking to anybody in this room. I'm looking right at the camera to all the people that like to type to me. About where do you draw the line? I draw the line where the Bible draws the line. It is not my responsibility to draw outside of his lines and put more on you than you can bear, right? He said, if you add to or you take it away, you're going to be cursed. So we don't need to add on all these other things that Christ already took off of you. We're not going to get you saved and then put you into bondage. Saving got you out of bondage and the church needs to stop putting so much stuff on the people that have been delivered and set free and say, you know what? I was praying and God told me to tell you that. That may be your personal conviction but it doesn't mean it's a standard by which God judges everybody. I'm walking right through your tulips. Well, they should live like that and live like that. It's a personal salvation. And what God saved me from and the fire that came into my life burnt some things out of my life that I'll never bring back in. But I'm not here to judge the fire of your life and what God burnt out of your life that'll never come back into your life because you and I have a different relationship with Christ, right? It would be a fool of me to say, you know what? I believe this church should never watch horror films because I don't like to watch horror films. I like, I want to be able to walk through my house and not wonder what's behind me, right? Because my wife is scary enough listening to all these murder shows and podcasts and the last thing I need to do right on Saturday night is to watch some crazy movie and then come in here to preach about you and I'll be talking all kinds of stuff. Weird dreams. No, that's me. But maybe you don't have a problem with it. But for me, I'm a scaredy cat and I don't like whorehouses and I don't like that stuff. But what we've done 
is because God convicted of me of something. I start lining you up to the fire that's in my life. And we lose our own salvation and hope because we're judging other people. I don't mean about eternity. I'm talking about we have people lose their minds about what somebody else is doing or not doing. Can I tell you that what the word says? It does not say, look to your neighbor where their help comes from. Look to your neighbor and see what they're doing. He says, look to the hills where your help comes from. Look up for your redemption draweth nigh. Revival would break out if we would get our eyes off of each other and get our eyes on the Lamb of God. And this is why I'll close. The third day. Before the Passover was instituted, God reconstructed the entire Hebrew calendar. He gave the last half of their civil year significant preeminence over the first half. Of the seventh month of Abib, God said, this month, and this is Exodus chapter 12, this month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So the month of Abib became the Passover month, and that month was to have preeminence. In that month, God delivered Israel out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 13. He began to pre-plan all of this as a foreshadow of a much greater deliverance. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 says it like this. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. In Nehemiah chapter 2 and Esther chapter 3, the name Abib was changed to the month of Nisan. This all happened during the Babylonian captivity. But it did not change the month nor the day. And the enemy may try to change the name and the seasons and the times. But it does not change God's plan. God selected the 14th day of the Passover That was to be the very day that Jesus died on Calvary. Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 17, Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 27, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10, Luke chapter 9, Luke 18, Luke 24. He repeatedly said, I will rise on the third day. We believe him and we accept his word as truth. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 4 confirms it yet again. That on the third day, he would rise again. On the 17th of the month of Nisan, which used to be Abib, he would rise again. On the very day that the Ark of the Covenant came to rest on Mount Ariat, on the very place where the only begotten son of Abraham and Sarah was taken up the mountain to be sacrificed, but he did not die. He came back down the mountain. On the very day that uh, the eighth generation, the tenth generation, and the twentieth generation of mankind began to foreshadow all these things, on the day of Christ's crucifixion, the seventeenth day of the month, Christ is crucified, And he rises from the dead on the third day. The Old Testament is just unraveling and unveiling everything that's going to happen in the New Testament. Let let me give you some homework. If you want to know how this whole thing ends, go read the book of Genesis from chapter 9 backwards. And it ends like this. And God created a new heavens and a new earth because Genesis chapter 1 says and in the beginning God created 
And so it's all just going to work backwards right all over again. And God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. So you want to know how this thing ends? Go read the beginning. And God will restore his relationship with man just like it was in the beginning. God doesn't want you to come to church and sit and listen to me. God's desire is for you to walk and talk with him. And everything he has done is to build a dwelling place in you. In Genesis chapter 1 and verses 9 through 13, God chose the third day of creation to bring dry land up out of a watery mass. He brought earth up out of the water. He brought forth grass and herbs and trees. Genesis chapter 1 verses 9 through 13. And on the third day of creation, he is showing us exactly what his plan is down the road. That on the third day, coming up out of a grave, is going to be earth. He formed man from the earth. And at creation, he's telling the devil, on the third day, coming up out of a grave is going to be the earth. And I'm going to establish it forever. So all the way back into creation, he's saying, this is what's going to happen. On the third day, you think he's dead and gone and buried, but he will rise again, never to be put back into that grave again. This is the plan that God has for you and for me. And I'm going to stop right there. I could go about three more hours. We didn't even get through point one. So if you just stand me across the building. I told you I'm going to teach. I love to preach. I'm going to do that Wednesday night. It's first Wednesday. We're going to have worship and we're going to have a move of God. Over the next few weeks, I want to teach you something because foundation will move you from a tent that is temporary to a foundation that cannot be shaken. We are saved by the foolishness of preaching, but we are established by the soundness of teaching. So we're going to preach, we're going to teach. And over the next few weeks, you're going to be amazed at what you can find out about Christ through God's tabernacle. And we will not water it down because God desires to tabernacle with you. So with every head bowed and with every eye closed, Heavenly Father, I pray over this congregation that you dwell with them and you walk with them and you talk with them. May your Holy Spirit be their guide. And may the fire of your spirit burn out anything that need not be there. May the fire of your Holy Spirit burn out every disease, every sin, every iniquity, every ounce of depression, every ounce of oppression. May the fire of the Holy Spirit rest upon your people and burn that out of our lives so that we can walk in freeness and liberty and in your truth. And if we will know the truth, the truth will certainly set us free. So may our eyes of revelation and our ears be anointed to hear what thus saith the word of the Lord to the church in this day. And I ask all of this in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, amen. Before you go, our prayer teams are going to come. Pastor Evan and the team are going to sing one more song. And if you have a need in your life, whatever that may be in your life, this is your moment, your time to get prayed for any physical need, financial need, or spiritual need. And then Pastor Ed and Helen, they'll come and dismiss you.
Thank you for listening today. Be sure to check out our podcast weekly, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also visit SIWCenter.org to find out more information about Southern Illinois Worship Center. Be sure to join us right here next week.